Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and uh, it is great to be with you. And I do want to just uh, thank you, uh, because I know that many of you were praying for me the uh, past uh, couple of weeks and a number of days, and for my family, I'm very thankful that uh, the strain of the virus I had was very, very mild, and my family is well, and uh, did not uh, contract the virus, and we're very thankful. The Lord was uh, gracious to us and kind, and so uh, thank you for your prayers, and, and it is good to be with you. Um, well, this morning, uh, with the new year, we're beginning a new series. We're beginning a series in the New Testament book of Philippians, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Philippians. It is in the New Testament, which is in uh, the back half of your Bible. It's going to be near the back. It's in between uh, the letters to the Ephesians and to the Colossians. So you can find uh, the book of Philippians there. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1 this morning. And this is a fun book, I have to tell you. Uh, I'm very excited about this book because uh, it's so beautiful. Uh, there's amazing truths in this book of Philippians, this short book. Uh, it's written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, what some of you may not know is that sometimes it's referred to as the epistle of joy. It's sometimes called the epistle of joy, and the reason for this is because uh, the word joy or rejoice is repeated 14 times in this book. So four chapters, right? This isn't Romans, it's not Galatians, it's not First uh, or Second Corinthians, which have many, many chapters. This is Philippians, it's four chapters, four chapters, and Paul speaks of joy or rejoicing 14 times. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Joy. I mean, that's something we could all use, couldn't we? Regardless of our situation, our circumstance, I mean, who would turn away the opportunity to be joyful? And how much more in the season that we've been in? I know we're coming out of Christmas, and Christmas is a season of joy and rejoicing, and for many of us, we did experience joy, but but Christmas was very different this year, wasn't it? I mean, some of us were in quarantine. Almost all of us were far from family, right? Many of us were experiencing illness or diagnosis or just concern about the upcoming year or, or just weariness from the year that has just finished. And so even in this season of Christmas that is supposed to be a season of joy and celebrating, well, it just wasn't very joyful for some. And so joy sounds pretty good. And it's because of times like this that we need a letter like Philippians. A, a letter that reorients us to why we are to have joy. And Paul begins to shape and to reorient why we are to have joy with a prayer. That's how Philippians 1 begins. It begins with a prayer. See, verses 3 through 11 of Philippians 1 is one paragraph, and it's one prayer. And it's a prayer that Paul offers for the church. And so what a wonderful way for us to begin a new year. By looking at this prayer that Paul made for his church. For this church at Philippi. So let's go ahead and read Philippians 1 beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we come to it now that you would allow love to abound in our hearts, that love would fill our minds and love would be on my lips. God, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we would see your beauty, that you would turn our gaze away from things of this world and we would fix it on you, the one whom we beloved, the one who is given of himself. Father, let us turn our eyes towards you so that we would be your people and we would follow you in all our ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I imagine that many of us uh, began the year in prayer. I mean, we're believers, we love Jesus, and so prayer is probably a regular part of our lives. And so maybe even some of us on that very first night of the new year at 1201, maybe some of us spent our first breaths in prayer, right? The the new year began, the old year was over, we lifted a glass to toast, we yelled happy new year, and maybe then we spent some time in prayer. Don't feel bad if you didn't, because I didn't either. (laughs) I had been asleep for many hours, and at 12.01, I was, well, I wasn't asleep anymore because my neighbor was setting off fireworks, and so prayer was far from my mind at 12.01. But many of us, maybe the next morning, the next afternoon, or the next evening, we spent time in prayer, maybe thanking God that 2020 was over and there was the beginning of a new year. Maybe praying for all sorts of things, but, but all of us were. And so I just am curious, what, what filled your prayers? And maybe it was weariness, maybe it was frustration, maybe it was disappointment. Paul begins this letter with prayer. He's not coming off of a year like 2020, but Paul is in chains. He's in prison. He's writing this letter from prison. And so you can imagine that his prayer, it might be filled with lament. How long, O Lord, will I be imprisoned? Maybe it be filled with imprecation. Lord, bring justice to the unjust. Lord, bring justice to those who perpetrate injustice. Maybe his prayer is filled with weariness. My bones are wasting away. I mean, from prison, from chains, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that those were the things that he was feeling in his heart, right? Those are the thoughts that he has in his mind. Lament, imprecation, weariness. It's not hard to imagine because maybe those are the very things that we have been experiencing. Weariness. How long, O Lord? How long? When will this year end? When will this pandemic end? When will the newness come? Right? We've known that. And there's something right about saying those things. There's something very right, being honest with our emotional experiences before the Lord. I mean, in fact, those very things, imprecation, lament, weariness, those are very, the very things we see throughout Scripture. The Psalms are filled with the psalmist crying out, How long, O Lord? And my bones are weary. 
And so it's not hard to imagine that these were maybe things that God's people were experiencing as Paul was writing this letter. And that they may be the very things that we are experiencing. And yet, even though it's not hard to imagine that this might be what was going through Paul's mind as he was in prison, as he was experiencing hardship, did you notice that his prayer isn't filled with exacerbation? It's actually filled with thanksgiving. That while Paul is writing from prison, his posture of prayer is that of thanksgiving. You see it in verse 3? It begins, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. When Paul is in prison, when he is in chains, when he is far from the church and cannot be with his friends, when he thinks of them, he is filled with thanksgiving. Now, some of you are familiar with this book because you've studied in. You're familiar with the New Testament. So you're sitting there thinking, well, sure, Paul's thankful for the church at Philippi because it's not the church at Corinth, right? I mean, when we think of Corinth, we don't think of this church full of joy and rejoicing, right? Corinth was a hot mess. I think that's the theological term that we're supposed to use, right? I mean, I mean problems abounded there, right? People were getting drunk as they came to the Lord's Supper, And there was a man who had an illicit and very public affair with his stepmother. And there was division and discord and there was fighting. And so, of course, Paul can be thankful for the church at Philippi because it's not the church at Corinth. But you know what's amazing, just as a side note? If you go read 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul's thankful for them too. But also what's amazing is that Philippi wasn't all roses, And it wasn't just Sunday afternoon walks in the park. That there was difficulty there as well. And we know this because in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is going to direct his attention towards two members of the church. Towards two women who were having a, a confrontation with one another that spilled out so that others knew about it. Euodia and Syntyche. We're going to talk about them in a number of weeks from now. But they were disputing with one another, and it became so public that Paul, while he's in jail, far away, he hears about it. And he tells them, stop disputing. Agree in the Lord. And so Philippi, though it's not Corinth, it's not smooth sailing either. And y'all, this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us because the church of Philippi is the church. And it's full of people, people like me, and people like you, people who sin, and people who let differences and preferences and opinions affect our relationships. The church is filled with sinful people. And yet, even with a place filled with people like me, And people like you, Paul, when he thinks of them, he can say, I thank my God for you all. He's full of thanksgiving. And he tells us why he's full of thanksgiving, because in verse 5 he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that word partnership, it can commonly be translated in other places of scripture, and sometimes even in this passage by other translations as fellowship. Okay, that word partnership can mean fellowship. And so when you think of the word fellowship, what do you think of? That's a very churchy word. What do you think of? Well, maybe you think of fellowship hour, 
or fellowship 15 minutes, <laughs> right, as we're getting coffee and we're going from Sunday school into worship, or, or maybe you think of a fellowship hall, or right, the fellowship time that we are together. It's just simply a time where we sip coffee and we catch up on the week and we connect with one, one another relationally. And that is fellowship. There is that relational connection, but, but biblical fellowship is far more than sipping coffee and shooting the breeze. That's why Paul uses, that's why the translators translate this word partnership. Because it's getting at something far deeper than simply our modern notions of fellowship. That the church itself is joined together with one another and with Paul around something far more important and far more significant and far bigger than ourselves. We are partnered around the gospel. That's what he said. Because of your partnership in the gospel. That is what connects us. You see, we are partnered with one another, not because of our common socioeconomic status, or because of our general moral vision of the world, or because of some political affiliation. Please, please, those things are not strong enough to hold us together. Those things are mere social clubs and affinity groups. But that's not the church. That's not the church. You see, there is something far deeper and more significant that orients us and unites us and and directs our mission in this world, and that is the gospel. That is what we have fellowship around. That is what we are partnered around, and that is why Paul can have thanks when he thinks of them, because of what unites them. And it is the gospel that Christ has come and he has died and he has risen again that that is what they are united around. And so Paul begins his prayer with thanksgiving for their partnership. But he also makes a request. You see, it's not just a prayer of thanksgiving. There's a request that he makes. He asks for something on behalf of the church. His prayer has content. And the content of his prayer is love. And we hear his affection for them, don't we? I hold you in my heart. You are partakers with me. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I yearn for you. That's how he talks about them. That's how he feels when he thinks about them. It is love and deep affection. A love that is so deep that he says in verse 9 that, that he prays that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. He prays that they would abound in love. Now, I have to tell you that as I read this prayer this week, and I was going over this passage in preparation for this sermon, I started to think about the other prayers that we see in the New Testament, the other prayers that Paul offered for some of the other churches. And I started to look at those prayers, and I was thinking about this prayer, and I realized something. I realized that the sound, the content of my prayers, don't sound very much like this prayer. I was pretty convicted by it. I started thinking about what fills my prayers. What are those things that we pray for again and again and again? What is our default when we open our mouths to speak to God? And I realized that what I pray for are needs and things and removing discomfort and getting that frustrating person out of my life. And those are the things that I pray for. The realities of life, of day-to-day life, those are the things that occupy my prayers. And, and don't hear what I'm not saying. I mean, we are supposed to pray for those things, right? I mean, y'all prayed for my health this week. 
and for my family, and I'm thankful for that. And we're going to continue to pray for one another in those ways, and we're going to pray for one another as we grieve and mourn and as we rejoice and celebrate. We're going to pray for our daily bread, as Jesus told us to do. So we are to pray for those things, but I've realized that's all I was praying for. And Paul prays for more than that. The day-to-day circumstances of life, the emotions that we feel, those are all fair game. We should be bringing those before the Lord. But Paul prayed that love would abound. Prays for love that in our minds and our hearts and in our midst that love would abound. And y'all, biblical love, it's not that like warm feeling that we get when we're around someone we care about. It's not like the the sweaty palms that we feel when we're near someone that we have affection for. It's not about this general acceptance of anything. Paul, Paul clarifies that biblical love is far deeper than that. He says that love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So you see, love abounding means that we would know what is true and right. That our lives would be manifestations of goodness and beauty. That love abounding means we'd be pure and blameless. That's what Paul prayed for this church. And so I want to invite you. I want to invite you to pray that for me. You see, that's what I need. I need it in my heart and in my mind for love to abound. And so I want to invite you to pray that for me. And I'm going to pray that for you. And we're going to pray for one another. We'll keep praying for those other things we need to. For those who are mourning. For those who are grieving. For those who are in need of job. For those who are in need of health. Right? right? We'll keep praying for those things. But we will also pray that we would be a people of love. That that's what would mark us, right? I mean, Jesus himself said that what the world, the world would know that we are dis- his disciples by the way that we love one another. And so let us pray that we would love one another and that our love would be evident to the world around us and to one another. You pray that for me. And I'll pray that for you. That we would abound in love. And the reason we pray this way is because of what our prayers are founded upon. They're founded upon God's grace. You know, this letter, it actually begins and ends with grace. In verse 2, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last words that he's going to write in chapter 4, verse 23, are the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You see, grace begins and it ends, this letter. It bookends it. A grace that is reflected in a new identity. That's what he says to us, about us. Look at verse 1. Grace to you, peace from God our Father, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Our new identity to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, when you think of saint, don't think about those who are morally perfect or people without sin or those who perform some miracle and are canonized or whatever it is that we might have in our mind of what a saint is. Those aren't saints. A saint is simply someone who has received God's grace. People who have been set apart by Christ to be his church. Saints are you and me. I know that's not how we think about ourselves. 
right? I know we don't think about ourselves as saints, and yet that is what God's word calls you, a saint. Saint Rachel, and Saint Glenn, and Saint Joe. That's who we are. We are his saints. That's what God's word calls us. And we are this not because of our moral standing, but because of Christ. We are this because of Christ, because Paul says to all the saints in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. You see that language of being in Christ, it is speaking of our union with Christ. Now, I already said that the theme of this letter, the, the major theme is joy and rejoicing, because those words show up 14 times in these four chapters. Well, the second most common theme in this book is our union with Christ. Because those words in Christ and in him, they show up 12 times in this book. 12 times Paul speaks explicitly of our being united to Jesus. That we are united to him. And there is so much that we could talk about in regards to our union with Christ. And we will in the coming weeks. But for now, what I want you to take away is that those who have been united to Christ, who have this new identity as a saint, it, what it means is that we belong to him. That we are no longer our own. That's how the Heidelberg Catechism begins. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. To be united to him, to be saints in Christ, means that we belong to him. That we are his. That is God's grace. This new identity that he has given to us. That we are saints in Christ. But this grace is also reflected in this certain future. Look at verse 6. Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful verse. I imagine that many of you who have studied this book before, like, if you're going to memorize a verse, this is the verse you probably memorized, right? It's so beautiful. It's so hopeful. And it's also so challenging. Like, when I think about it, it's so challenging, and it's challenging because it actually pushes against the hopelessness that we can feel about our lives and about the lives of others. What do I mean by that? Well, have you ever uttered the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Of course you have. And you weren't talking about that dog in the backyard, were you? <laughs> no, you were talking about yourself. You're talking about someone in your community, someone in your midst, right? You're talking about yourself. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. And when we express that, when we say those words, what we're expressing is a hopelessness that things are never going to change. Right? We look at our lives and we see that we're still struggling with the same sins we were years ago. And it feels like we're not progressing. It feels like we're not winning. It feels like we're not victorious over those temptations and sins, right? We're still lusting, and we're still being argumentative, and we're still materialistic, and we're still angry, and we're still addicted. And it can be easy for us to just resign ourselves to the thought that, that we're never going to change, and they're never going to change, and this church is never going to change because you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? You know what? You can't. You can't. And neither can I. 
But look what the verse says. It says, he, not me, not we, he who began a good work in you. See, this new identity that God formed in you, this beginning of change that God has begun in you, that beginning isn't the end. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You see, what this passage is telling us, what that verse is telling us, is that God doesn't look upon his people and throw up his hands in resignation and leave us to ourselves. No, God loves us too much to leave us as we are. It doesn't mean that we'll be free completely from our struggle with sin in this life. We know we won't. It doesn't mean that we'll experience this completion in this day, but what it means is that there is a day coming when the work that God has begun in us will find its completion. It means that God is not done with you yet. So we don't have to throw up our hands in resignation. And we don't have to utter that hopeless phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, because God is doing the very thing that we think that we can't do, that we know we can't do. He's changing us. He's completing the work that he has begun in us. And y'all, when, when we're founded on that grace, of that certain future, of this new identity, of, of being taken from death to life, of having our eyes open from going from being blind to being able to see, from going from the darkness into the light, when we are founded on that grace, of course we're going to pursue love. And of course we're going to be thankful. Of course we're going to pray this prayer. And so friends, let us begin today Let us allow these words to be the words of our prayers. Let these words be the words of our lives, of today and of tomorrow, and not just this year, not just of 2021, but of the rest of our lives, that love would abound, that we would be founded on grace, that we would be full of thanksgiving. Let us pray this prayer now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves or to our own devices, but that instead that you have begun a good work in us and you are seeing it through to completion. And so we pray that as we await that day when you, Lord Jesus, will return and we will be made complete, when we will be pure and blameless, we, as we await that day, we pray that love would abound. We pray that love would abound in my heart and in all of our hearts. We pray that love would abound in our communal life together. We pray that love would abound so that others would see the love that we have for you and for one another, and they would praise you, our Father who is in heaven. And so we pray that you would complete this work that you have begun, and that you would fill your people with thanksgiving. And we pray all this in the name of Christ, and God's people said together, Amen.